Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by Sam and Sage from Your Brain on Weird. How y'all doing today? It's a lovely Thursday. How y'all doing? Great. Great. How are you? (laughs) Fantastic. Like, that that is apt for this very... This Thursday did not know what it wanted to be. It was rainy, it was sunny, and it kept going back and forth, and I hated it. I, I hated everything about it, and uh, it's going to be really cold tomorrow, which is, you know, the sign that winter is is right around the corner. So, you know, it's a Thursday in fall. Yep. Yep. Happy Equinox, by the way. Happy yes. Equinox. Yeah, it's Maybon. Yeah. It is. Hey. That is very true. Very it's time true. for it to be cold again. I wasn't cre- I wasn't quite ready, but I think I've had a couple of days of cold and wearing like comfy hoodies, and now I'm like, okay, I'm ready to be comfy again. <laughs> yeah, not sweat profusely just from walking. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That'd be nice. It would be really nice. Um, today we're going to a place that I think has a reputation for being, you know, chilly kind of most of the time anyway, uh, which is northern wales uh we're talking about the sunderland family and uh i have talked a little bit about the sunderland family before i featured part of their story in episode 96 but this story progressed beyond the original articles that i found about them into we're like saving the world from like you know planets that are coming into our own time and space and like just going to ruin everything uh we're talking about uh psychic questing today which is a topic that i never knew about until i dove into this story this is a story that goes all over the place so first and foremost i want your reactions when i sent you this outline what did you think first and foremost it was a lot like I felt like there was just like like a, everything like a little little bit of everything. Yeah, no, I agree. There's like a little bit of like haunting type stuff. There's like abduction. There's the psychic questing thing, which is like a whole separate issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, this is. This story literally has it all and the kitchen sink, folks. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not understating that when I when I say this like this. It's a it's a contacty kind of story that is very unique, very different than what you're probably used to hearing with most kind of abduction stories with, you know, kind of like a singular type of phenomenon that manifests itself in like very similar ways in these abduction like events with like a few stray kind of like incidences where people are like oh yeah i had a strange interaction with this really weird human looking dude like walking home or something like that like this story 
there's weird looking people, but like we get to know them a little bit, which is which is great. We never normally get to know them at all. <laughs> I want to be their friend. They're just like me. Yes. Weird looking people. <laughs> <laughs> They're just weird looking people, folks. And (laughs) to be honest, you missed the massive belch at the beginning of this episode. So, like, (laughs) edit it back in. Yeah, 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 right. It's the that's the bonus audio. Like that, you all y'all deserve the bonus audio. But uh, we'll uh, we're we're gonna go over a little bit again the uh, the kind of beginning of the story, which we did cover on episode ninety six and. Uh, it starts in, kind of in the Mar- in, in March of 1978. Publicity for Close Encounters of the Third Kind is really like it's ratcheting up. It's premiering in Wales uh, a year after it, co- it came out in the States. And it, there were newspaper advertisements all over the place in, in Wales newspapers. And on one particular night, Marion Sunderland's son, his name's Darren, he was about 10 years old in 1978, asked her what a close encounter of the third kind was. And when she told him, he quietly announced to the family that he had had one of these a couple of years ago in the summer of 1976. It's, it's just a casual thing, you know? Uh, just <laughs> Oh, that's it, it happened just, to me? Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> Absolutely. It, it, it's just, it's, it's a tale as old as time. Uh, it, it just casually comes up in conversation. You just happened to have a close encounter of the third kind when you were eight years old. Totally casual. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely casual. So he tells the family this and his sister, whose name is Gaynor. She's 11 years old. Uh, she briefly, she was outside, she comes inside and she makes fun of him for this story and, you know, just saying he's inventing things, you know, brothers and sisters making fun of each other. Uh, but we're told that it's kind of uncharacteristic for her because, uh, you know, she's very supportive of her brother. She's very loving. So, you know, when she comes inside later on, uh, she approaches her mother. And she nervously relays the encounter that she had with a UFO and its occupant. She had one, too. Again, it's just casual. It happens. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And she's just sitting there like, what What is with my children? Yeah. Like, (laughs) as a parent, how are how how do you handle that? Like, are you thinking, do I need to take them to therapy? Because I don't know what this is. What is going on? I would, I would hope so. I mean, e- even if, you know, if you do believe that it happened, then you would think that it probably, you know, had some kind of psychological effect on them. So, you know, they should probably be going to therapy anyway, even if it did happen. If you don't think it happened, then yeah, your first thought is probably my kid needs therapy. I would hope. <laughs> that's that's a fair that's a fair reaction i and and i i totally i totally back that up but yeah like uh so we get their stories and uh we start with darren's and according to darren in july of 76 he was walking down a road called codon road and he's passing by this field and in this field he sees this kind of glinting object it kind of 
catches him in the periphery. And in this field, he sees this object on four tall legs. It's elongated. And um, that when you first look at the sketch, it kind of looks like it's ripped from the Jetsons because it's it, it, it's kind of like that domed kind of craft. It's transparent. And it's kind of flat on the bottom and it has feet when it lands and stuff like that. It, it definitely reminds me of like a Jetsons kind of space age vehicle in a way. And it's got this like elongated tailpiece kind of similar to the way that air airplanes have. And atop this flattened section, you know, there's this large dome and, and it's made up of like kind of small squares uh, in a way. And at the top of the dome is what he says is a periscope. So this is definitely ripped from the the mind of a child. Like there's no way around this. This is something a child definitely invented in their mind. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it had the legs and then and it was long out the top, but the top was made out of a bunch of squares, but mm -hmm. it was circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A kid. Mm -hmm. Exactly. This is this is definitely from the mind of the kid. And on the side closest to him, he can make out these kind of black symbols that re resemble kind of like um there's a bunch of different ones, but one that he points out is like a, a circle with kind of a cross in it, kind of similar to if you take um, kind of like a watch battery and you look at it and you look on top, you'll see that it has a like a cross on the top of it kind of look similar to that in, in a way. But um, there's these series of wires extending from the back end of this thing. And they're attached to these blue bulbs that uh, were on top of poles. And they were just kind of pushed into the ground a little bit. But the most alarming thing here is that there's a series of five or six men uh, that appear to be kind of like struggling to walk a little bit. They were, they were carrying what he describes as guns. And the sketch of these beings is like the most unhinged thing that you've ever seen because <laughs> it is, it looks like a guy on his last nerve and he's about to murder somebody. Like that's the best way that like, it, it's very cartoonish in a way. It it's like a uh, very cartoony looking dude with kind of like short, um, kind of like Homer Simpson hair, but with a little bit more, you know, just like very sparse hair on top. And they, they just, they're on their last nerve and they're looking down at these bulbs and they keep pressing on these guns that they have in their hands. Like they're trying to do something with them, but whatever they're doing, it, it just wasn't working. And according to the report, uh, quote, they were jumping up and down apparently with rage. So just full of rage. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be us this weekend, Sam. We're going to a right, metal concert relatable. this weekend. That's going to be us. <laughs> you will be jumping up and down with rage. You will be exactly. these. You'll be these aliens. Absolutely. I'm going to channel Just, them. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so these men were, were damn short. They were about four foot, ten inches tall. Uh, very human in appearance, uh, despite having like angular bodies is the way that they describe them. Just like a few wisps, wisps of hair atop the head and 
Uh, they wore these kind of like silver tops and green pants, which, you know, the fashion fashion choices here. I'm picturing kind of like a Peter Griffin in a way, you know, just kind of very similar to that. Now, my first thought is the aliens, one of their first exposures to uh, our culture was Family Guy. And they're like, OK, well, yeah. now we have to dress like this guy so that they yeah. are scared by us. Yes, Great. they are time travelers. They saw this stuff. They came back and they're like, we got a Peter Griffin, this thing like that's that's a role model here. It's just got to happen. Um, but interesting uh, choice, but OK. Yes, interesting choice. Uh, uh, here's what I'm going to do, because I can find I, I need to find the sketches of these things for you, because it, it's just absolutely just bonkers. Hilarious. You're going to look for this is a PDF, so I'm putting it in the chat here now. Uh, you're going to want page 15. 14. Oh, boy. <laughs> so can you can you describe for me wh what you're seeing right in front of you right now? That's the sketch of this individual. I think you were pretty spot on when you said um, Homer Simpson, but with more hair. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It literally, he's got like four pieces of hair mm. and just like, I don't know, dumb face, square face. <laughs> but he's like wearing headphones, you know? He he's like got a headphones. headphones. Yeah. 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 Um, he, definitely looks, he definitely looks, looks like he's angry. Yes. Definitely looks like he is. Uh, like, have, have you ever seen that one video clip? It's supposed to be, it's like, one of the worst like movies ever and it's like a uh, an image of a guy and he moves a garbage can and the guys there's a guy holding a gun and he's like garbage day and like uh yeah he shoots him yes. and it, yeah it, it looks like the epitome of that right there that's that's the it first does. thing that kind of comes to mind yeah <laughs> i've never heard of that but <laughs> it's it's uh it's absolutely fantastic it's like one of the best worst scenes in any film ever but um you'll have to find it later you'll you would enjoy yes. it it's very good okay okay <laughs> yes but uh yeah so uh as you can see excellent fashion choices here but uh you know these these guys are frustrated one of these men walks up to the bulbs that are in the ground and he starts hitting it with the butt of the gun and he destroys all of them but one and before long, this kind of central ramp comes down from the bottom of the ship. And suddenly, a creature, which he describes as not unlike a dinosaur, uh, with a green body and a red neck, come down the ramp, uh, and in place of ears, it has long, floppy cheeks. And that is the creature that you're seeing uh, right next to that man coming down. It is, it is a weird-looking bird. It looks like a weird-looking bird. Say, it looks like a bird, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, so and, you're saying that, that that's the ears, then? Yes. The, the that wavy, huge wavy line, big floppy ears. Like uh, this is a yeah. Okay. So did this? Did Darren draw these himself, um, or did someone else draw these from his description? Do you know? Uh, I think. Um, I think that he drew these, if I if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, 
it doesn't mention in there, but I'm pretty sure he did because uh, with with Gainer sketches, um, or, or no, these are I think are adapted from sketches that they drew. So somebody basically took their sketches and did their kind of own interpretation of them. So okay, but um, you know, got that George Jetsony looking craft right there. Um, just absolutely brilliant so this this creature comes down the ramp with these big huge floppy cheeks and uh one of the men ended up growling at this bird and it turned around with a sad expression and walked back up the ramp just upsetting bird Aww. dinosaurs here yeah right they're like who let you out get back inside yep. okay okay <laughs> So big floppy store. Yeah, those big flop those those big floppy. It's just like you want to go pinch them. That's it's what you want to do. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I I do at this point because you know, poor dinosaur bird goes back up inside, and then there's this human man with a pink face, larger quantity of hair, like more significant amount of hair, and he appears on the inside of the dome. He can kind of see through it and sees this. Um, this man in the dome, he sees kind of the control panel, uh, but it's like a picture that's projected on a wall, basically. Um, and eventually this man creepily turns towards Darren and he just smiles at him. Uh, No, thank you. Um, yeah, no thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And one other fun feature is that, um, when these shorter, angrier uh men entered their craft they they would shrink down once they got inside so uh they were in fact really tiny inside their craft which is you know a feature if you want to you know wow save on headroom and everything you know make a little more room yeah that's smart (laughs) yeah it is um and then eventually you know darren's just like you know, beats feet out of there and and gets, uh, runs home. Um, but, uh, interestingly enough with Gaynor's story, hers happens in a very similar way with kind of similar looking beings, kind of less angry looking though. There's an angry expression in here, you know, here to there, but, uh, you know, Gaynor, she was riding her bike, uh, on a different section of Kodan Road. Apparently, there's like kind of like a lot of fields. It's a very rural area. There isn't a lot of um, a lot of houses out there. There's a few. They have a few neighbors, but uh, at one point, she's descending a hill, and then she's noticing in this empty field this kind of silvery cigar. It's about thirty-five feet long, ten feet high has rectangular windows going around the craft and it's casting this yellow glow from the inside. And she at first thinks that this is for a carnival. Like there's gotta be a carnival coming to town or or something like that, which it's an interesting thought, but (laughs) in rural Cluid County, maybe not the place where a carnival would be coming. I could be wrong, but uh, Cluid County did not seem to be the most populous county in Wales. Um, just, just do it from a Google search. But, um, you know, she 
sees it, kind of confused. And following that thought, this kind of shadow passes in front of one of the windows. So she drops down and she takes cover in, in some hedges. And, and, and the scene that's about to play out is actually on the on the cover of that PDF that I sent you. It's, it, it's going to play out exactly like that um, with a with a creature that looks surprisingly stunned. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, like this is one of my favorite images of all time. It's um, it's so fantastic. Uh, but uh, yeah, this, so she's lying on her stomach and she watches as this man appears from an open door and a ramp that came down from the front of the ship. And he was about five foot five. Then again, we got angular features described. Uh, and he walked in these kind of jerky sidesteps because uh, if you notice, his knees are a little further up on his leg than you would normally see a human. Yeah, now Ew. that you point that out. Yeah. 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 Ew, I hate Interesting. that. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, go on. <laughs> so, you know, making these... You know, jerky, jerky movements uh, has a very large and, you know, and round eyes like, you know, kind of like the eyes that uh, make you think that someone is screaming all the time uh, has that look. Yeah. Pink irises, which is, you know, um, kind of freaky. And they had uh, three fingers and a thumb. So one less digit on the hands. And he's wearing this kind of one-piece silver suit. There's uh, no zipper, no seams, which is kind of your typical alien attire. They've figured out how to put on clothes without the need for zippers, which, you know, break down and, and stuff. You know, it's it's frustrating. It, it's a human frustration. Yes. But, yeah, uh, I hate zippers. Me and zippers, just not... Just not a fan. Buttons, not buttons fan. are. I can't do buttons personally. No, no, no. <laughs> terrible, terrible inventions. Just kind of they're they're antiquated <laughs> at this point. These aliens have figured it out. Okay, when do we step up to the plate, become trendsetters in fashion, and figure out the seamless outfit, the one that yeah we are able to get out of it, but we're not giving away our secrets. Where is that? in my fashion (laughs) Sam and I talked a while ago about how we think that the next new fashion trend should just be you know almost like tattoos you know like little stickers Mm -hmm. you can just just slap them Mm -hmm. on yourself just like adhesive absolutely you get up every morning you know you have a bunch of sheets of stickers in your closet you just pick which ones you want and just you know slap them on (laughs) I'm down with that I'm down. Like, I, yes. it, it, it seems like a lot less work than like really putting on a t-shirt. And I, I, I stand by that because like, you know, slapping something on you is a lot different than just like putting a t-shirt on. It's just like, it's, it, there's so much work involved with that. Like yeah. a lot. It's just, yep. we're human beings. How have we not evolved past this? Like, how have we not gotten past this? Either that or we just do cloth tube. Mm, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. It just goes that's over your t- head and you're just like. Yep. I, d- I dig that. 
I, I definitely <laughs> dig that because yeah, I think you could holes, like uh, <laughs> optional. I would say oh, optional yeah. armholes. Right. <laughs> I dig that though because like one thing that I want to do is just like you know slap tubes with people like all over the place just like you know turn it into a, a day where you're just like going up to people and just you know like jousting with the tubes i think it'd be great i think it would be a- have you ever seen two giraffes fight yes <laughs> that's what i'm thinking of right now <laughs> that's exactly it yep exactly it uh, so yeah this tubes (laughs) tubes yeah speaking of tubes this dude has a tube of some kind she describes it as kind of like a uh a gun in a way that um darren did only like whenever this being pressed the trigger there would be these wavy red lines that would kind of come down uh from it and it, it moved like incredibly slowly, which is interesting because it's like, is this like the dial up version of a laser gun? I'm not sure. Like, it, it seems weird to see a slow moving beam of light coming from a gun. But I guess, you know, with this, that's what it was. And uh, it used it to create holes in the ground um, and placing a hand in each of them. So, uh, from the report, quote, Gaynor had now been watching for 10 to 15 minutes and she was uncomfortable and frightened as any of us would probably be with, I mean, the knees, just the knees first and foremost. Uh, I'm scared. I'm scared of those knees. I'm scared of what I would be like with knees like that on on Ugh. Earth in this gravity. I no, I wasn't made for that gravity if that's the case. But uh, she kind of moves her leg slightly and she got it caught on a hedge. So she made a little bit of a noise. And unfortunately, at this point, the entity was only about 10 feet away from her. So I'm pretty sure that's what we're seeing on the cover of this issue of Flying Saucer Reviews. The creature's like, oh, God, it's there. (laughs) It's there and it's staring at me. That's that's terrifying. That's so terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He did not turn his body, which was, you know, sideways to her. He moved his eyes towards her, though, which is, yeah. Worse. Um, That's worse. yeah, Yeah. 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 And when she, when he looked at her, she started to feel dizzy um, and cold. And she said it, it was, she felt like this being was like entering her mind, uh, you know, through telepathy and just kind of assessing the threat level of this child and, you know, realizing, eh, you know, it's, it, it's no big deal. She, however, is like paralyzed on the ground. She can't move. Can't move at all. And this being just goes on, keeps making holes in the ground. Like nothing's wrong. Nothing's going on. Well, child saw me. I've got work to do. Hole. Why is this gun so slow? Hole. (laughs) Um. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I can you know. hear I can hear that. I, for some reason, I, I'm thinking of that that weird wobbly noise that you hear in like sci-fi movies, you know, where they shoot yes. it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes. That's, that's what I'm hearing in my head right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just like this guy, uh, we we will get his name later, but uh, just like Ooh. dear God, why have we not getting better? Got better equipment yet? This is horseshit. Need to talk to <laughs> HR or somebody about this because I am done. I am done. They with spent this. all the money uh, on the outfit. Yeah, clearly, clearly, <laughs> I can't imagine that stuff's cheap. It it just can't be. But um, uh, Gainer also heard. What she described as kind of a whimpering sound coming from inside the object, which she you know suggests that somebody else is in there. So she is sees the a weird hand. dinosaur bird thing. No, we have no weird dinosaur <sighs> birds this time. Instead, we have a hand that comes out and it waves oh. up and down. Uh, and in in response to the man on the ground, uh, he he moved kind of from side to side as if to acknowledge the hand in a, in a way. And then he walked into the craft where she heard this kind of murmur that was going on. Uh, and he did kind of emerge later, disappeared behind the ship. Um, and another figure actually ended up emerging And this. Uh, she could distinctly tell was a woman had the figure of a woman and she was kind of slightly shorter. And instead of uh, like a, I think she did have a gun, but she also had this kind of like jagged knife um, with her too, which is also creepy. Uh, very, very weird looking. Uh, not a fan uh, of that at all. Huh. It's pretty cool. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe not yeah. when it's pointed at me, but in general, it's a pretty yeah. sick looking knife. <laughs> Absolutely. So th- this woman, she comes over and, and she looks at Gainer. And again, she feels this dizzying, cold feeling. Uh, and according to her, she'd been lying there for about 30 minutes or so when another whimpering sound came from the inside of the craft. Not as sure exactly what's causing that whimpering sound, but the woman looks up to the sun and, and there's like kind of this famous image, uh, that appeared in newspapers of, uh, this figure kind of hunched over and looking at Gainer. And she kind of has this like kind of an angry look on her face a little bit, not like uh, the um, deranged Homer Simpson looking things wearing the Peter Griffin outfits, but like just kind of like, I, like if I could think of it, like the, you know, that the, the Muppet that is the, the blue Eagle that has that, like he's got the unibrow going on, just kind of looks yes. down. That's the kind. That's the kind of look that she had on her face at the time, which is it's very apt. Like just like, oh god, I don't want to be here. Like, get me out of here. So, oh okay, I had to Google it. Yeah, just like I understand. Yeah, that kind of stern expression of, I'm here. I don't want to be here. I I need to get on with my day. I guess, but. She enters the craft and, and whatever was holding Gainer there, she's finally able to get up and she first runs, forgets her, forgets her bike, goes back for a bike, and then she takes off with it. She doesn't ride her bike. She's running with her bike and she's just 
kind of fearful that this UFO is going to pursue her, but she kind of hears a faint humming sound at her back. Uh, and she turned around and she smelled, it, there was a smell of like something burning and this object shoots up in a way. Um, and she, you know, pedals, uh, back home and for confirmation, she returned to the field the next day, found an oval patch of grass where the craft sat on the ground and the grass was kind of flecked with silver and the holes were no longer there. Strangely, uh, the grass itself kind of looked a little greener as if, you know, rain had come, but after this, after they both Darren and Gaynor tell their stories to their mother in, uh, 1978, um, about around August, there's a small story that appears in the Liverpool daily post and echo. And it's kind of unclear, um, because, the Jenny Randalls and Paul Wetnell, who are the main investigators on this case, they wrote a book in the early 1980s called Alien Contact about this story. And nobody knows how it got to press. But the problem is, is that the only people that know this story are Gaynor, Darren, and her parents, and probably the rest of the family. So who did they tell? Eh, you know, you, you tend to wonder, but... A couple of days after the story's in the paper, Marion, she steps outside. She's enjoying the evening air. She often takes the dog out for late night walks and stuff, but um, she's looking to kind of uh, lights to a nearby uh, city. And there is kind of one that stands out. Um, it looks larger than the others. It's pale yellow, and there's kind of like bright whites and reds and oranges kind of mixed with it. Um, and she calls to her husband, friend, her husband, Fred, and, you know, he quickly dismisses it as an airplane, you know, typical kind of, I think husband response in most of these cases where like the husband's kind of like, nah, I don't know. I didn't see anything, but you know, could be crazy anything. woman. Yeah, exactly. That's that seems to be what it is most of the time yeah. uh, in these stories. Just like dudes being that way. And, you know, Marion kind of believed it was like, yeah, it's probably a plane, even though there's no reason why a plane would be that low in the sky. There's no place for a plane over there to land. It doesn't make much sense. But, you know, it's the only rational thing that you can hold on to at the time. That was until the object just split in two, which, Ooh. you know. Yeah, planes don't do that. Have you ever seen a plane do that? <laughs> no. I don't think that's supposed to happen. Yeah, that's... I don't yeah. Think, uh, feel like you're going to have a problem if your plane just splits in two. Yeah. I don't know. You might. You might. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. And this thing splits into two smaller yellow lights, and they kind of move around a bit before they merge back together. And the object just kind of slowly merges with the ground which is weird but yeah it shouldn't do that so you know there's a lot of weird stuff happening in northern wales the year before 1977 
West Wales has this kind of huge flap going on where, um, you know, the Broadhaven school landing is kind of like the biggest case from that time. People are seeing UFOs and they're seeing what they dub these tall spacemen. They're over like seven feet tall and they're kind of like floating around people's properties. They appear at the, in one family's farm and then a, another woman's house. And there's a motel where they're seen and stuff. It's There's a lot of weird stuff happening in Wales around this time. So things just keep happening. They continue to kind of see lights off and on in, in the area uh, and, and such. But in October of 1978, Gaynor, uh, Carl, who was her uh, older brother, and Marion would see kind of like very similar objects on the same day. So uh, Gaynor and Carl, they had gone to like a disco and as they were returning, they noticed these kind of like f- what they think are fireworks in the distance, kind of near Guy Fawkes Day. And, you know, examining them closer through, you know, the, these objects appeared to be kind of dancing on hedgerows. So they're smaller, they're um, animate, they're they're doing whatever, you know, they, they feel like doing just being kind of weird. And they see them kind of briefly shoot away. So about uh, an hour after they see that Marion steps outside with the dog, taking the dog for an evening walk. And she's, uh, she likes to look at stars with binoculars and stuff. And on this particular night, she spots an unusually bright object in the sky. So, it's hovering over the mountains, nearby mountains, and through binoculars, she sees kind of like this white circle. There's kind of an orange uh, hue to it. it. It kind of reminds her a little bit of uh, the way that a light bulb kind of um, illuminates and stuff. And she later complains to the military. Military calls her back, and they're interested. They're wondering like, um, you know, what is it that you saw, ma'am? And, um, you know, she's, she's trying to get to the bottom of it. She asks him if there's any planes or anything in the area. And he's like, no, there's no military maneuvers or anything. And then he says like, there are other odd lights that were reported in the same area at the same time. So, you know, it's, it's confirmed by the military. We got the military in on this. Um, so things are, strange they're very strange and what we learn about the sunderland family is that marion and most of her children have psychic abilities they were born with them and for marion and carl these manifest manifestations are kind of a little weaker but in gainer darren and barry they they seem kind of much stronger um uh, that uh, one of the features uh, of it for them is that it manifests into being able to see auras for people, and for Gainer in particular, she could kind of sense when something was about to happen. She kind of had this precognition type thing when, like, uh, a phenomenal um, thing was about to happen, like something to do with the phenomenon. She would be she'd be that creepy kid like they're here. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> let's, let's just pump the brakes here for a minute. OK, <laughs> I don't like. That. No, uh, thank you. No, you know, lights in the sky were just a very common thing for these folks. 
Um, and one thing about Gainers that she had a very good memory, like she had memories of being a toddler, like going back a long time. And uh, she and, and her brother Darren recalled uh, playing with uh, these lights that would enter their rooms as kids. And they would also see kind of like shadowy figures around the house, which I'm not a fan of. Let's uh, no, thank you. Um, we can uh, we can not do that. That's cool. It was with the publicity of this case and the subsequent investigation that strange things started to happen around their house as well. They started to notice like these kind of people kind of snooping around their homes, kind of MIB prowler types in a, in a way. Only they were able to jump over hedges, which, you know, just like clear vault over hedges. Um, very, very weird stuff. And on February 21st, 1979, Gaynor had gone outside one night to play with the neighbor's border collie, wh- whose name was Shep. And once outside, um, they were playing kind of opposite this little stream and this dog sits down on its stomach and it's just like looking straight ahead. And in the sky, there's this orange ball of light and she Gainer looks over into this tall grass. Cause it's kind of a small hilly area with some tall grass And she sees emerging from them the two beings that she had interacted with three years earlier, or almost three years earlier. And they were smiling at her, which is a far cry from what they were the last time, which was annoyed as shit. Very annoyed. Just (laughs) not having it. Work conditions got Uh, better. They did. Yeah. uh, I'm I'm hoping (laughs) they got some raises. Good union bennies, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, good things happen for them. A faster gun. That's what I was going to say. A faster hole digging laser. Come on. Yep. (laughs) Like those old slow hole digging lasers are basically the equivalent to the textbook that you had in high school that your parents had before you. Like that's what it was basically. (laughs) (laughs) The hand-me-downs. The hand-me-down, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, son, I used this when I was a kid, and now you can use it. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, they're smiling at her. Holes, my good sir. <laughs> yes, just, like, <laughs> dig the hell out of them. Go nuts. It's kind of like, I would imagine giving them that upgrade is like giving a kid a post hole digger. And watching them go nuts because like oh, I no. had no I, I had I had friends who talked about like there was a guy that I worked with because I worked in a hardware store I worked at Obashan Hardware when I was uh, nice. uh I was in my early twenties and I, I there was a coworker and he started talking about like yeah I bought a post hole digger I just went nuts with it man I just kept digging holes digging holes <laughs> what but it's the power of the post hole digger you give them you give it to them and they just go nuts it's like it's fun yeah. Yeah. don't it is don't fun. go crazy with power <laughs> oh no <laughs> you went crazy it. with power <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yes 
So okay, <laughs> Shep's Shep's laying there. He's looking at them. He lets out a little whine, and they disappear. And the light kind of goes out in the sky. And it, and it's also during this month that I don't know who came to this decision. People thought it was a good idea to hypnotically regress children, which I'm going to say is not a good idea. It's never a good idea. Don't re- hypnotically regress your children ever. So that that happened. Um, yeah, Darren was that's not messed up. A, yeah, Darren was not a good subject for it, and Gaynor didn't really give them anything. So, yeah, just words of the wise: don't don't regress your children. That's that's fucking cruel. As the story progresses, it's March twenty fourth, and Gaynor is babysitting uh, like one of the neighbors' children, and at one point. She calls her mother because she's feeling very kind of uncomfortable. She describes this like kind of feeling that somebody is in the room watching her. So her mother comes over, sits with her. And at one point, she just like jumps up and she's just like very concerned. But after a while, things kind of calm down and um, the uh, person she's babysitting for comes home. She goes home the next morning at breakfast. There's this moment where Gaynor just kind of like pops into a trance and she says, quote, I think they are important people, leaders or scientists or something like that. They are important to the in the world. They are beautiful to their own kind. They think they are pretty. I don't think uh, all their kind look like that. What they what they were doing was important to them. Do you understand? Now, if you're at the breakfast table and your child says this to you, we're 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 going to see a doctor like i just yeah i i don't it that's no no it's the do you understand that gets me yes yes no i don't no (laughs) no no so like are the is she are the aliens saying this about themselves through her or is she saying this about them, like she's being feed, you know, fed information. I don't know, but like, still, just a freaky set of words to be saying to anybody. I just no. I, yeah, don't like that. It's it's so much worse when it's a kid too. You know, it's it's so much creepier. It's like, how do you know mm-hmm. these things? Right, you're too young to know shit like this. What the hell? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, that's that's what we're dealing with. So by this time, um, she started dreaming about these beings. And two weeks earlier, she'd had a dream in which she was on board a UFO with them. Um, Marion and Gaynor were also seeing strange figures inside the house. So for Marion, they look kind of like shadow figures. She would see them moving about. But to Gaynor, she was able to see full-bodied type apparitions and there was one evening she saw a man standing next to the bathroom door wearing white coverall type clothing that was shimmering and you know they were basically kind of showing how Gainer's abilities were stronger than her mother's like she just kind of seemed to be the one um 
And they started talking about something called cygenics, which, you know, is basically just the idea that it could be passed from family member to family member. It's a genetic thing. It's a genetic ability and, and, and stuff like that. So not unusual in certain realms of literature, but, you know, it is it is what it is. Uh, Jenny Randall's and Paul Wetnall, along with local investigators, have been involved with the case throughout 1979 uh, and there was one that suggested if she brought a camera to bed with her, that these dreams would probably stop. And they didn't at all. Uh, and on June 24th, Gaynor headed to bed around 8 p.m. She she was just reading for a while. She was reading a book of, called White Boots, which is a book about figure skating. So at around 11 p.m., she starts to feel woozy. And she looked to kind of the she was laying on her back and she looked up and she can sign. She can kind of see like the horizon because um, in Wales around this period of time, it doesn't get fully dark. You get some elements of daylight. The sun doesn't totally go down, but uh, she can see kind of, you know, outside. There's the hinting of sun still in the sky. And she looked up into her ceiling and she sees this big, long, dark tunnel that was emerging into her bedroom. And as Randall's and Wetnall wrote in their book, Alien Contact, quote, as if it were a giant vacuum cleaner and she, a speck of dust, the helpless child was sucked into the vortex. Oh, my God. <laughs> OK. That's just a banger well, sentence. Damn. Yeet. <laughs> child gets yeeted into the fourth dimension and she emerges in this strange place with green grass that's that's the defining feature um there were kind of trees in the distance there's this kind of flowing stream you know uh i don't know how long it takes to go through the vortex but uh seemed to be pretty rather instantaneous and the two beings stood in front of her the man was dressed in a one-piece green outfit, similar to kind of, um, they described it as uh, like an outfit you would see on like a show such as Flash Gordon. And the woman was wearing kind of a light pink dress. And between the man and the woman it was a young child, um, about two and a half feet tall. And she came to believe that this child was born around the time uh, that she had her encounter in in 1976. And what I want to know is, what's the maternity leave like there? Like, you kidding me? She just has a kid. She's back at it. What the frig is this? Like, <laughs> damn. Give her some time. <laughs> I'm well, I guess you don't really need maternity leave as long if you get to bring your kid to work with you, you know? Why would you want to oh, do true. that? Why would you want to do Teach that? Teach him how to dig holes real slow. Oh, yeah. Here, the old kid fashion head. way. Yeah. <laughs> old school way. Child labor. Child labor. Like, it's just it's just what they're doing. Um, so they tell her that she had come from very far away. And the woman introduced herself. Her name was Arna. And the man... His name is Pars and kind of like 
there's an abduction case that we covered, the Carl Higdon abduction. Um, there's a lot of similarities between this this particular incident and what Carl Higdon experienced and was shown by um, the being that he interacted with was called also one. And um, they basically show her this, their city, but they leave their child behind in the process, which is just like bad parenting. It's just, he'll be fine. (laughs) No problem. No problem. Um, We'll leave him here with my gun to dig holes for a few hours. Yeah, totally going to be fine. So they kind of touch her hand and the scenery changes immediately. Um, I'm kind of picturing like um, Ghost of Christmas Past and like kind of like um, uh, like the Muppet Christmas Carol, like kind of that. It's just, you know, in, in, in the blink of an eye. And there's a large red sun. There's like lar- it's bigger than Earth's sun and it's just hanging in the sky and there's a familiar blue to the sky. There are buildings with flat roofs and sharp edges. And on one of them, she says she could see a bunch of children playing with a ball. There were no roads, only rough, rough cobbled streets. So I, I dig that their roads are old school or they just kind of looked at the roads because they, they look like they were in disrepair and just basically said, yeah, fuck it. We don't need those. Who cares? Who cares? And they didn't need them because they drove around in hovercrafts. So, you know. Yeah. Literally roads where we're going. Yeah. We don't need them. Don't need them yeah. anymore. Yeah. No, they they put all the time and effort into researching the actual vehicle instead of researching the road. That's you know what? fair. Good for them. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Just they are on it. And they pass by individuals that look similar to Arna and Pars. And, you know, before long, they were back in the field and she was back in her bedroom. And what's interesting is that during the night, Marion had looked in on her children she, like she usually did. And she noticed at one point that Gaynor was just like lying on her back, just like flat, looking upward. Looked like she was sleeping. Didn't go in and check on her child. Just assume, yeah, she's fine. No problem. And, you know, she comes back in a little while later and she sees that she's like under her covers, just like in the in the normal sleeping position. So, you know, no problem. Just let it go. And when Arna and Pars talk to Gainers, she said that they come to her in the darkness, which she assumes means her dreams. So that's basically how they make contact with her uh, in in most ways because it's hard for them to kind of materialize. And one thing that she did notice when they were in this city is that they had uh, specifically pars had this kind of insignia on his chest and it, it was like an emblem, but it had like a squiggly lines in it, triangles, circles, a a bunch of different shapes going on on it. It seemed kind of nonsensical in many ways, but you know, sometimes there's insignias, sometimes there isn't, but two months later we get one of the most dramatic moments of this entire case. And it was dubbed in the book, the exorcism. That's right. We've got, an exorcism happening here. Not your typical exorcism, mind you. We're exorcising a 
sentient planet from coming into our own time and space, as you do. Uh-huh. Ah, just, I did that last you know, week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's And it's, like, really taxing. Like, it's really tough on, on the human body, but... Um, <laughs> Gaynor kind of described how she was troubled by something, but she couldn't like kind of put her mind on it. And there was an evening, uh, the evening of August 9th. And she started to go just like really pale. And she looked out the window and she thought she could see Arna briefly kind of trying to materialize, but she knew that something was wrong. She couldn't figure it out though. And then a few days later, we kind of like a week and a half later on August 20th, this fear is just kind of mounted to a point. She realizes that there was something big that was going to come through to our dimension, a planet, a sentient planet. And Arna had shown her this kind of mental image of a planet that was coming through a doorway. And that's how Arna and Pars came through into Wales is through this magical doorway. So Gainer basically had to drive this planet back. So she gathers her family together out in the yard and they drive it back using quote unquote loving thoughts. Like, I'm not kidding you. That's that's pretty much how she says it. Loving thoughts. As you do. And interesting. Yes. And and she claimed (laughs) that this that this planet was uh, frightened of adults. So it kind of has this like child's mindset in a way of it's in the way that she described it. Cause there's like a lot of feeling put to this, like this planet's not meaning to come through. It it was just, that's where it was headed and it was going to come through. It's kind of innocent, but she's like, basically like it, it wasn't evil. It wasn't planned to, destroy anything it was just the course that it was on either way she drives it back crisis averted through the power of love we're driving a planet back so i have a question first and foremost does that sound like the plot to a movie to any of you because there's a specific movie that comes to mind when i think of this um i don't know if it does for you guys but i thought of this instantly um no it's it sounds like the plot to the fifth element like literally oh, the I end. So at the end of the fifth element, you know, the, the, the thing is, is like, there's this invading sentient planet that's coming down and it's going to destroy basically earth. I think it's earth. Um, but the, the main, the main character in that story, um, uh, who the heck is her? Who the heck is she? I can't even remember. God damn it. All right. Um, I just Googled it. So because I I haven't seen this movie. Mila Jovovich. Yeah. Mila Jovovich. That's that's it. So she's kind of this being that uh, that appears out of nowhere and she's supposed to do something. So what they do is like they essentially take the four elements in this temple together with the fifth element, which is love. Love is the fifth element. And that. <laughs> drives it away, drives this planet away, basically just kind of kills it. And that's is basic. This is basically the plot to the fifth element. Like before the fifth yeah. element came out, 
It, it was yeah. happening in real life, folks. It happened in real life. We know it. We have it. It's been documented. Do you oh think they got God. that idea from this story then? Or that's like, what I wonder. I wonder. Because yeah. I feel like that's just too specific of a mm-hmm. something to, you know, of a story to just, I don't know, though. Yeah. Drive it back with love. Yeah. Of course, Driving it was the in back. the 70s, too. Right. Mm-hmm. It was the first and only time thoughts and prayers has ever worked. <laughs> the only time. The only time. It is it has averted a planet coming into this time and dimension and just ripping shit up. Just uh yeah. This is wow. This was that moment. You are absolutely correct. <laughs> Gaynor goes on like kind of a bunch of other expeditions and stuff to this planet with Arna and Pars. She goes to see these, um, this kind of like alien zoo and like the, the names for these animals are kind of nonsensical and where they come from and stuff like that. Definitely like something from the mind of a child in many ways. And she sees, uh, distinctly one on one trip glowing bigfoot like creatures like short bigfoot like creatures with glowing yellow oh, eyes now oh, yeah yes. yeah um Everything. there was one time they see it while she's playing with her sister neris uh who's the youngest sunderland child and they're like kind of playing in the yard and they see this like short creature just kind of loping around and it's like, Oh yeah, I saw them on, on the planet with Arn and pars, you know, it's no big deal. They're fine. So, um, her brother Barry, after, you know, they start getting the attention from this case and stuff. He starts talking about an experience that he had, that he had seen a craft and beings in a field, in 1976 only the the beings that he interacted with they kind of looked like the heli the kelly hopkinsville goblins in a lot of ways they were mm. they had long pointy ears just very similar in the way that they looked so that's kind of very just uh you know putting his foot into the the whole mystery thing and at a certain point the the activity kind of shifted to darren and darren started to um experience um a lot of weird stuff there's there's one visitation where he awoke and he kind of found himself surrounded by a bunch of light and he was terrified so he closes his eyes tight he opens up again he's in this strange field and there are those beings the ones that are you know about to lose it with those guns and you know missing that hair and they're kind of uh he's looking at them on each side they're in this strange field and there are familiar but kind of different looking beings on the other side and he's looking at these two opposing groups and they're at war with each other basically so these beings give darren this model it's a model of the george jetson looking like craft and they instruct him to take it and go over to the other people and give it to them so he does He starts walking over to this field. And this is like, you know, World War One type trench warfare stuff here. It seems like, you know, he's in the middle of no man's land, no man land. And, uh, you know, he goes over and he presents this to these beings and these beings fearfully 
told him to take it back, get it the hell away from him. And he describes it playing out as if it's a scene from Star Wars, which, you know, by this time is, uh, you know, popular and stuff. So after that, he's transported back into his bedroom again. And eventually these contacts die down for him, too. You know, he has uh, the the beings appear uh, like his experiences feel in many ways more abduction like as opposed to gainers, which are more contacty ish. So there's kind of that little bit of difference. But this is where the story evolves into psychic questing. Yes, the psychic questing. And you may be asking yourself, what the hell is psychic questing? Well, uh, I'm going to quote from a paper from a man named Simon Nugent. It's called Overlooked or Overcooked? The Case for Psychic Questing in Western Esotericism. Um, psychic <laughs> questing activity oh, can be extremely varied depending upon the nature of the quest being undertaken. However, there are three useful definitions, and they are as follows. One, using intuitively inspired thoughts and information for creative purposes, be it the exploration of history, the search for hidden artifacts, or simply the quest for enlightenment. Cool. Uh, Two, the investigation of historical and sacred landscape mysteries via the combination of archival research and magical and psychical techniques. The similarity to this, uh, the similarity of this to a pragmatic approach to magic, such as chaos or rune work, will become apparent quite quickly. For both are concerned with results. And three, a quest may begin in ways, in many ways, often with a psychic tuning in to a site and sensing a message. The information received could be a vision or communication with a site guardian figure a thought form left behind from the past to watch over and spiritually care for the site. So as the writer mentions in this, in this paper, uh, in the second definition, like the, basically it's, it's using chaos magic to find things, historical things, historical artifacts, um, exploring historical places like, it, it's pretty cool. It's it's a cool idea. And um, it arises through two figures in the late 1970s. And these two figures, uh, the first is Andrew Collins. Now, people today would know Andrew Collins if they had watched Ancient Aliens, because he's the guy that talks endlessly about Gobekli Tepe. So he's that guy. Say what you will about Andrew Collins. The other is a man named Graham Phillips. Um, And I I don't really know that much about Graham. I haven't really, I didn't really find a whole heck of a lot of information on him. I didn't do a whole heck of a lot of digging because it's just this story. But the Sunderland family gets wrapped up in this. Um, And this becomes a thing in, and, and, and there are still modern, I think, psychic questing groups and stuff like that. But this became a thing after this initial story takes place. So um, Graham and Andrew, they meet in 1978 and they start to uh, collaborate on a magazine called strange phenomenon. They kind of share a flat uh, in Liverpool 
And this would lead them to start a paranormal research organization called Parasearch. Yeah. Creative. Yeah. Yeah. They figured it out. They got it. Great job, guys. Nailed it. Nailed it. Got it in one. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, the Collins and Phillips, they share this flat. Um, And it's also where they kind of made Strange Phenomenon. They sold it out of their their flat and everything. So on Wednesday, October 17th, 1979, Collins arrives at home to an agitated Phillips pacing back and forth, going on about something trying to, quote unquote, get through. This is very Gaynor Sunderland-ish, so mm-hmm. it, it fits in very well with what's going on here. So, you know, you got a friend, and what's your friend offering to do for you? To put you under hypnosis, you know, as friends do. Hey, man, I'll help you suss this out right here. Just lay back. I got it. Okay. Yeah. And... <laughs> This is a direct quote from Andrew Collins' website. Like, I'm going to be quoting a, a bunch from his website in this one piece that he wrote about the the origins of psychic questing. Um, quote, after some discomfort, Graham relaxed, and I found myself speaking to a secondary personality named Joanna, inspired by a living person of this name, uh, named Joanna Wasson, uh, an old friend of Graham's, from his days in college in Exeter. <laughs> so oh. pers- this personality comes out. Uh, Meonia, the, the word Meonia, which is going to be kind of a key word for them, was offered by Joanna as a name for the Philosopher's Stone, the material substance sought by medieval alchemists to achieve a state of spiritual completion and perfection cloaked under the guise of the transmutation of base metal into gold. That's right. We're dealing with the Philosopher's Stone here today, folks. It's it's here. Uh, there is no question that the ancients saw the Emerald Tablet of Hermes as an expression of this stone, looked on as a vehicle that enabled the practitioner to achieve oneness with the Supreme Being, the hermetic concept of the one in this way, the statement I am one encoded in the word Meonia makes sense of its apparent connection, not only with the philosopher's stone, but with the Emerald tablet itself. That's right. That is right. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. We're just throwing names and anything we can at it. (laughs) Sounds legit. Sounds cool. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. It sounds convincing. It does sound convincing. Um, yeah, if you don't think too hard about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, seriously, you don't need to think too hard on it. It's just, it is what it is. Um, so, Andrew Collins' narrative on this is kind of very confusing. And I'm going to try and rein it in as much as I can. Uh, Andrew had spoken to a psychic earlier that day named Alan Beard and Beard explained that two days earlier, he had a vision of a green stone. The stone first began in his dream as a loaf of bread and it shrunk down to the apparent size of an egg before the image settled on an oval shaped green stone. And it had been worn in a ring quote, 
unquote, by an important woman. So this personality, Joanna, basically said that they had to find this green stone at all costs and gave them a location, Harvington Hall, which was the home of a guy named Sir Humphrey Packington. So he's connected with an event called the Gunpowder Plot of, of 1605, which was a failed assassination attempt uh, on King James I in order to restore the Catholic monarchy in England. And it's believed that Packington took possession of the Greenstone following the arrest of the conspirators uh, in this plot. So failed plot to overthrow the king. There's a Greenstone. It's given to Packington, who lived at Harvington Hall. So... Quote, this information led us to note uh, potential clues among the remaining murals in a first floor corridor of the hall, which portrayed the nine worthies, nine great heroes of history, generally three biblical, three legendary and three historical. They drew us to consider the importance of a distinctive sword stance displayed by at least two of the worthies, the strong man, Samson and the giant slayer, David. <laughs> I just, uh, it's just it's it's so oh great God. just so <laughs> it's so epic most of the stuff i like don't even know how to react to because i'm just like what where are, what are, yeah. where are we now i thought we were yeah we we're talking about like aliens yeah. and shit what <laughs> yeah 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 so yeah this is you know when the aliens go away you've got to find other things to occupy your time so it's That's like questing yes um Known as the St. George Perry, where the weapon is held horizontally above the head to block an attack, it persuaded us to research the possible relevance of knighthood, chivalry, and the saga of King Arthur to the Green Stone story. We even felt that the St. George's Perry might be a clue pointing towards the importance of the familiar image of King Arthur's sword Excalibur held in a horizontal position by the Lady of the Lake. Perhaps we were looking for a concealment place on an island in the middle of a lake somewhere in the landscape. So. That narrows it down. Yeah. So. <laughs> the Andrew landscape Graham, TM. You, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark. Yeah. Yeah. So Andrew and Graham. Do, do a bit of, bit of research and it leads them to this kind of isolated pool on the estate of the Earl of Coventry beneath a place called Knights Hill. So you got some knights. It's kind of, you know, coming back into the fold symbolically here. Um, and right before they investigate this, they get a phone call from their friend Alan Beard whom they had not spoken to uh, in a few days and talked about this other vision that he had indicating that they wouldn't find the stone, but they would find a sword. Okay. All right. I guess that's yeah. almost as good. Yeah. So <laughs> the date was Monday, 23 October, 1979. And that night, after some effort, Graham and I retrieved a short steel sword from behind an age-old dry stone wall, holding up the bank next to a small brick footbridge at one end of the pool. It was covered in ivy and protected by thick undergrowth. 
making it extremely difficult to access. I am pretty confident that it had been there for a very long time indeed. The sword was found in a small cavity behind the ninth stone, down and along from the bridge. Nine was a recurring number in the quest. It was hermetically sealed in a thick layer of brown-green resin, which on removal revealed a pristine sword with an inscription along the blade that read, Meonia for Mary. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Mm. That's, I... Whoa. (laughs) So we got this word again, Meonia. Uh, You know... Basically, again, it means I am one or or something similar to that. The Mary implied in the inscription was assumed to be Mary, Queen of Scots, the Catholic monarch imprisoned by Queen Elizabeth after being accused of plotting against her. For the remainder of her troubled life, Mary Stuart was frequently moved between castles in the north and midlands of England until finally she reached... uh, where is that? Uh, fathering? Hey, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce that in <laughs> Northlands, um, where she was executed in 1587. Joanna had claimed that Mary possessed the Meonia stone. So now they're calling it the Meonia stone, this green stone, the Meonia stone, same thing. And she was wearing it on a ring before passing it on to a young Robert Catsby the leader of the gunpowder plot. <laughs> so oh. now it's starting to tie in a little, but you know what? It doesn't fully because that would be too oh, easy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So apparently he had taken, uh, he had been taken to see her with his father, Sir William Catsby uh, himself, a recusant uh, when she was imprisoned uh, in a castle in the neighboring county of Staffordshire uh, just two years before his execution. So these are folks that are basically, um, they refuse to kind of convert to Protestantism, which was the, the big, uh, which was pretty heavy around that time in, in 1605 and stuff. That's, that's really what it has to do is like, um, England is largely Protestant. Catholics aren't happy about it. So, you know, Catholics try to plot and do a really bad job of it. Um, you know, it happens. So, she uh she in turn hands this ring off to uh Humphrey here uh Humphrey Packington at Harvington Hall you know he wasn't in, implicated in the plot but he was among the ranks that he was among those catholic ranks man he wasn't he wasn't going to convert so he took it upon himself to be the stones a guardian so Joanna now has predicted for them the quest for the green stone would be completed by Halloween. And this is where the Sunderlands enter the story. This is another direct quote from Alan's website. Uh, We had forgotten that Alan had said the sword would be used as an indicator to find the stone. And so during the mid-evening, about to spend the night at a hotel in the Cotswolds town, 
of Morrington on the Marsh, we were convinced by a friend, Marion Sunderland, mother of Gaynor, a high-profile UFO contactee featured in the book Alien Contact by Jenny Randalls, that we should return as soon as possible to the Knights Hill Pool where they would help us find the elusive stone. So Sunderland's now involved, friends with Alan Collins and, and such. Um, so this is what happened the next day, Monday, 29 October, standing on the footbridge next to where the sword was found. Gaynor used the ceremonial weapon found to be late nine, uh, 19th century manufacture as a divining instrument, rotating it clockwise until she felt drawn to a particular direction. Here, she said, some two miles away was a ruined building, an abbey perhaps, which held an important clue to the quest. So Gaynor is full on, you know, she's full on into divination now. You know, just able to, uh, you know, do that. Don't know where that came from, but that's great. Yeah. Good for her. Yep. So sure enough, there was a ruin exactly where she had indicated. It was located at a place called Dunstan Common. Yet it turned out not to be an abbey, but a sham castle built in the 18th century by the landscape architect. Uh, and this and this dude has the best name ever, Capability Brown. <laughs> That's <Wow>. very good. <laughs> what a capable boy. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, it was built as uh, part of the uh, um, estate of the Earl of Coventry. Um, so this folly bore impressive square and round towers, one of which was accessible, enabling Graham and Gaynor and I to climb its spiral staircase. We trod carefully in the partial darkness, but then became concerned by the sound of beating wings above us. It was accompanied by the fall of loose debris, which cascaded down onto our heads. Assuming that a large bird blocked our path, we turned back and headed out of the mysterious tower. It was probably pigeons. It was probably nesting pigeons. But um, yeah, like there is some like odd stuff in that. You know, that's that's like you're climbing up a tower and you think like a large bird uh, is going to like what a large bird what large birds in england sir what large birds like Maybe an they were... owl like <laughs> okay it depends on how big they are i don't know we Maybe came they all were this like... way and we're just like afraid of an owl so we're gonna, mm. go. we're gonna turn around now i'm all set actually yeah yeah. Were they distracted by the fact that they were in a quote-unquote castle and maybe they're like, ah, a dragon? Right. There's like a lot of aesthetic <laughs> to this story. Like this this feels like a King Arthur story in a lot of ways. Uh, I love way it. That, yeah. Yeah. It's just so fantastic. Um, that night at Marion and Gaynor's home in Flint, North Wales, a small group gathered around an OS map of the Worcestershire landscape, looking for further clues to the quest, feeling like our luck was finally running out. Fred Sutherland, Sunderland, Marion's husband, narrowed down the search by ringing an area that included those sites already marked out as important, perhaps. It was here, he suggested, that we should concentrate our efforts to find a location. 
About to give up, Marion flicked through a book on Queen Mary of Scots and noticed how the Catholic monarch embroidered pictures of waterfowl, she said swans, with their necks in a distinctive U-shape. Marion mentioned this out loud, at which Graham's eyes fell upon a bend on the River Avon called the Swan's Neck, located firmly within our designated search area. Stabbing the map, he exclaimed that he had found it and now felt sick inside. We all looked and saw the swan's neck marked. It was important not simply because of the tangential link with Mary, Queen of Scots, but because in 1600, a new star, actually a supernova, had been sighted in the constellation Cygnus, the celestial swan, which was seen by continental Rosicrucian mystics as a sign of a coming age of enlightenment, a fact which seems strangely relevant to our quest. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. long story short, they come to believe that the swan is a symbol of hope for suppressed Catholics under Mary, Queen of Scots, as well as Protestant Rosicrucians. They both kind of like use the symbol um the Rosicrucians, uh, you know, they're they're a little more metal than than the Catholics. They practice like magical philosophy based on hermetic teachings, you know, like a little like cooler in a lot of ways. So um the next day, Graham leaves early. He decides he wants to go research the swan's neck thing. And while he's out, Marion calls and says Gaynor experienced a powerful dream the night before. Gaynor described her dream. Graham, Alan, and Gaynor were ascending a tower at Dunstall Castle. So this is, they're back there again. They heard the sound of beating wings above them, but instead of running away, they continued to ascend and met a huge swan with its wings outstretched, and around its neck was a pouch held in place by cord. Gaynor was convinced that the green stone was inside. The swan led them to a location where there was running water and stated that this is where they would find it. Hours later, Graham calls and asks to meet at the Knights Hill pool. And they get out there and they notice that uh, somebody's been digging. Uh, He's got some dirt on his hands. He's been doing something. So, you know, Alan clues him into Gainer's stream and they make a kind of a new approach. They come from a different angle. They go through this kind of field meadow and they notice um, where that takes them. There's some uh, evidence of digging. It's a little bit of digging. He's been digging a little bit. And, uh, you know, everyone is a little startled. But, uh, and like the narrative this entire time is that Graham and Alan have these enemies. They're adversaries that are, that are on their tail at all times that are going to find the stone. Like this epic thing, like it's almost too epic for its own good. But (gasps) Alan Beard reassures them that the the stone will come to them regardless. So Graham insists that they go to the Sunderland's house to reconvene. So at this point, Alan is just completely suspicious, as he should be, that Graham's found it. He's he's already found it. So they go to the Sunderland's house. 
And Graham goes and meets with Gaynor for a period of time by themselves. And he, um, he presents her this, uh, what they call a brass casket. And inside this casket is the green gem. So Graham found it. And he had, you know, concerns that a large group of people going through this field meadow, um, it would draw attention to it and people would be like, Hey, what are you doing? Don't dig in this area, blah, 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 all that stuff. But it's not very deep. He, he was, he said that it was like, you know, kind of like less than six inches or so in the ground. This, this wasn't a, a big kind of box that it was in, but when he opened it, the green stone was in a, another silver, smaller silver box. And there was this black stone that was sitting next to it. And he gets this feeling like, don't touch the black stone, man. Don't touch it. And he takes it and he hucks it into the, the, the river. And he takes the, the silver box, takes the stone out of it, um, and reburies the silver box. Now, paranoia kicks in. And, you know, Graham puts this, you know, puts the silver box back in the ground, doesn't, you know, he wants to throw his adversaries off and everything. So, funnily enough, Alan went back up to the site to dig in the area where he said he buried it. Couldn't find the silver box. So, um, but the thing is, is like, Alan's not like, oh, he lied about this. He's like, oh, no, our adversaries are hot on our tail. They must have dug it up and, and stuff. But like adversaries, what are you talking about, man? Just who? Who? Yeah. Yeah. Is it that owl that was in that tower? It was that owl. <laughs> God dang it. The owls again. It's always the owls. It's always, always the owls. Um Following the completion of the quest, both the stone and casket were given into the care of Marion Sunderland, who championed the Greenstone story throughout her life. Sadly, following her death in 2005, uh, her daughter Gaynor inherited the item and sold it to an unknown bidder. Um, their whereabouts is unknown, according to Alan, but according to... I just stumbled upon a Twitter post somebody um i'm not gonna name who this person is but i mean if you if you search on twitter you can find it uh this individual claimed that uh gainer sunderland was his stepmother for a period of time that he had seen the green stone and he said that it looked like a piece of costume jewelry oh, oh. so yeah that's huh. um that's uh that's kind of where that ends, but like the the psychic questing stuff was a huge thing in England in the eighties and the nineties. It kind of died down a lot in the nineties, but again, there are still kind of like psychic questing groups that still do it to this day. Go out, look for you know things, whatever um, whatever purpose you have in it. But psychic questing, it's um, it's it's interesting, but. Um, there are a lot of criticisms that were levied against the Sunderland family, primarily by Jenny Randalls, who wrote the book, who didn't really as much investigate the cases as did like 
basically write the book. She she did have a little bit of contact with the family, but one thing that she always said was that Gaynor Sunderland and Marion Sunderland, they were kind of like these attention hounds. They were always in the middle of it, always wanting the attention. So she took that to mean, you know, like that they were making up a lot of this stuff. You know, kids wanted to get in on this. And the thing is, is like, Jenny Randall's wrote wrote this dissent in an issue of the Before a Journal, in which she was writing a book, uh, a review for a book, and that book is Eye of the Fire by Graham Phillips uh, and and another guy named Martin Keatman, and he she basically took the took the opportunity because of her connections with the psychic questing stuff. Cause this is a book all about psychic questing and just like rips into the Sunderland family, like, uh, you know, out of nowhere. And eventually Marion Sunderland kind of, um, writes her own rebuttal that's printed in the before a journal. They kind of have this little go, you know, back and forth, but yeah, like Jenny Randall's, didn't totally believe it and and, i mean that's also kind of jenny randall's she's kind of like a she's kind of one of like a skeptical believers is the best way that i would describe her also like the first uh trans woman in you know ufo research and stuff so she's a badass badass all the way um but yeah just wasn't totally on board with it and i and i understand because it's a story that is it's weird so at the end of this where are you all on the story right here now i am really with them for the first part i'm really with them and then um i don't know the psychic questing just feels like like a publicity stunt Mm -hmm. like they they made that whole story up you know and then they got a piece of costume jewelry to be like we got the thing but no one else can see it right Mm. but but yeah my thought was actually quite different i mean i mean i obviously the first part i'm with them the psychic questing thing i was with them up to a certain point and the mm-hmm. only reason why is because I have done and experienced things like that. Mm-hmm. And what this immediately reminds me of is Hellier. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's my first thought is Hellier and how they're, you know, taking all this evidence and tracking it and following clues and everything like that and using magic, you know, alongside it. So from that perspective, it makes sense to me. And it seems like it's something that could be real, but I, the, the costume jewelry thing, I think really threw me off the fact that he went out and did all this digging and found the thing by himself. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. made up some excuses to why it had to just be him that found it. That is where I get, you know, I almost, and especially with what you just said about um, Marion and her daughter, you know, my first thought is almost like, were they using this as a way to like make money? You know, were they trying to right. say this thing is super valuable, even though it's just a piece of costume jewelry, so that mm-hmm. they could sell it and get the money for it? Like, I don't know. But right. Uh, and the thing is, is like, I 
don't think they really profited off their story at all. Like that's okay. that's the one thing that uh, I uh, that they didn't have is just like making money off the story because, because I mean they didn't write the book they never wrote the articles the on, the only thing that they ever wrote was you know Marion Sunderland's descent of what uh, Jenny Randall's had written so like I don't think they made a lot of money and like. I don't even know if they ended up selling it. You know, they were saying eh, it was sold mm-hmm. to somebody. Some people said oh, it wasn't really sold. They held on to it. And like nobody's really sure what had happened to it. But again, I don't know today if it would be really be worth even in 2005 when Marion Sunderland died. I don't even know if it would have been worth anything, you know, just given like the reputation that psychic questing had had by that point. Because these are mm. kind of like the two relic items, the sword and this um, um, this green stone. And other than that, yeah, I they didn't really make money off this. So I don't know. I don't know if it's just like publicity for publicity stake because some people, you know, can be like that. But at the same time, like... I, I think the one thing that that gives me pause is the fact that their story appeared in the paper and nobody knows how it got there. Nobody knows who printed it. Mm. Nobody knows how it appeared there. So that that's the one thing that gives me pause. But other than that, yeah, it's just, it's just a fantastic story, like from top to bottom, except please do not hypnotically regress your children. Never do it. No. Just just never no. do it. And please do not work with antiquated ray guns that shoot out slowly. It's just, it's not good. You know that thing is going to malfunction at some point. And, you you know, you've got to call up somebody and they're going to tell you, oh, well, did you turn it off and then turn it back on again? <laughs> and it's and it's a whole thing. Like, nobody wants to deal with that. So Nobody wants to yeah. deal with that. <laughs> yeah. So just, yeah, those are the two things that you need to take away from this episode. Don't hypnotically regress your children. Stop working with antiquated ray guns. Just, just don't do it. All right. All right. Yeah. All right, so, um, you know, with, with those messages imparted, uh, thank you both so much for coming on for this episode. Cause this, this was just so much fun. Um, and I know, uh, your brain on weird is uh, on a little bit of a hiatus right now, but um, where can people keep up with what y'all are doing and, and, you know, updates about when you may be coming back? Um, so we're on Twitter at weird underscore pod. Um, we do try to post updates mostly there. We don't really um, post anywhere else. So you can find us there. Um, we also have a website, yourbrainonweird.com. Uh, we try to keep our updates there. But we are going to be releasing a new episode in October. We're going to kind of tag team um, the Salem Witch Trials. So we're, we've got some stuff coming up. Awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and as for us at the Our Strange Skies podcast, if you want to keep up with us, you know, follow along, all that good stuff, OurStrangeSkies.com has all the links that you need for for anything you want to do you want to buy some dope merch go go get it there's a link there for it it. patreon go get it go get it it's there (laughs) Uh, 
Get you some. Put that sweet, sweet merch on your body. It's great. It's fantastic. Deserve it. <laughs> Treat yourself. Ah, special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. To Spencer Worth Davis, who is the man behind the scenes, Megan Lagerberg for the logo, and the great Desdemona for our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or in your dreams when you're psychic questing. In gray, we trust. Mm-hmm.